Mark Twain famously said, Truth is stranger than fiction. But it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities, truth isn't. Let me give you an example of this. Jeffrey Dahmer had a bloody and naked victim escape his clutches and run straight to the police, who drove the man straight back to Dahmer's place to drop him off. You wouldn't believe that story if I told it. Yet it happened. Genghis Khan slaughtered more people than Hitler and Stalin combined. Furthermore, he raped so many women that his DNA is present still in 8% of Asian males. That's a lot of Asian males. I was going to throw out a few more clever examples. Time is precious, and I realize that What's a better example than our day-to-day lives? It's a constant raging example. Nothing pushes the suspension of disbelief more than real life. Just pick up a newspaper, open a news feed, read anything about current events for longer than seven seconds, and you're going to find something that you would never, ever believe in fiction. And in that spirit of impossibly true stories, I present to you three tales so outrageous that no one would ever believe that they happened except for that they did. I'm going to tell you about the breed of wild Georgia pig called the Moncrief Hogs, the serial killer called the Larpsecutioner, and I will read to you a letter from an old friend that I have called Dr. B and the Bear. Three stories that are living proof that the truth is stranger than fiction. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem, killers, cannibals, and cults, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrible truths. This is a Scary Home Companion. In the very first episode of a Scary Home Companion, which is called All the Cannibals Fine, Young, and Otherwise, I discuss the story of Obadiah Moncrief, the infamous cannibal hog farmer from Short Nap, Georgia. Obadiah's story is, and always has been, one of my favorites, so I've told it several times. But it just occurred to me the other day that I never told you the story of what happened to his hogs. As a quick refresh, Obadiah started eating hobos in order to spare his beloved hogs from slaughter. And then he started feeding the hogs the hobo scraps, and then, to save on feed bills, he just started taking more hobos and feeding them to the hogs as well. Well, Obadiah was eventually caught, dragged away, and imprisoned. I always assumed that the animals were all probably just killed and examined. 
What else could you do with them? Well, it turns out that I was only partially right about that. The state of Georgia, the Division of Wildlife Resources, was tasked with eventually exterminating the pigs. But they couldn't do that right away because they were still evidence. After Montgrief got locked up, cops had to comb the place, and it took them weeks because this was a lot of land. They slaughtered a couple of hogs to bring to autopsy, but the rest they had to keep for, well, until the investigation was complete. The point being that for about three or four weeks, the state of Georgia fed, watered, and cared for these Montgrief hogs, which ended up being a little bit of a problem for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, these hogs were bigger than hell. Wild Georgia pigs, you may not know this, can naturally get upwards of 200 pounds. That's a normal wild Georgia pig. But the Montgrief hogs, with their special diet and the tender loving care provided by Obadiah, these suckers were on average of 300, and the biggest ones weighed well over 400 pounds. More problematic than that was the fact that these hogs had been raised on a diet heavy in human meat. Going back to slop and feed, this was not working out, and with every passing day, the pigs started to get more aggressive. The three-person team in charge of handling the hogs finally, much to their relief, got the official determination that the hogs could be put down. Yes, the evidence, the autopsy said that these hogs had been raised on human meat. Now that they knew that, they didn't need to keep the rest. So this team of two men and one woman that had been taking care of the hogs so far were now tasked with killing them. Unfortunately, they decided to use a pneumatic bolt gun for the job, which was standard operating procedure, but it meant that they had to go into the hog pen to take care of business. They shot one pig. They did not kill this pig, but they shot it. The autopsy of the other hogs had shown that the skulls of Montgrief hogs were, for some reason, slightly thicker than the skulls of other hogs. So, in trying to put down this first pig, they merely enraged it, and it attacked them, and once that first one attacked and the scent of hot blood was in the air, the rest fell upon them in a feeding frenzy. The two men were both devoured very quickly. The woman was lucky enough to jump the fence, run to the truck, and hide inside, and watch helplessly as the hogs smashed their way through the gate, and went back to nature. Later on, this woman would say that the pigs didn't act like pigs. They acted like wolves, and they went after her friends like pack hunters. That was the day that the hogs left Montcree Farms behind for good, started spreading out through every other place in the great state of Georgia, but they started that night with the switchyard. You may or may not remember, but Obadiah Moncrief did most of his hunting at an 
abandoned railway switchyard located nearby his property. It had come to be known as the switch. Back in the days when men rode the rails, it was like the hobo hangout for the South. Uh, Atlanta for bums. But that was that was a long time ago, and this is now. And what used to be a, a shabby, chic, bum conclave was now a very solemn and depressing tent city for the local homeless population. As I said, Obi had been using the spot as his hunting ground for years. Like any good hunter, he was quiet, and he picked off the weak ones around the edges as to not spook the herd. So after the police had finished their investigation of the Montcree farm and left the area, it was back to business as usual for the, for the homeless encampment. Maybe the switch was the closest meat on the hoof to the farm. But I like to think that since these hogs had been raised on a very particular meat, the meat of the homeless, that when they got free, they caught that scent in the air and they followed it right to the source. What happened next was a night of such brutality, carnage, that I don't care to recount it. It's disrespectful to the dead. Survivor reports, if you believe them, estimate anywhere between 20 and 40 homeless people were killed and eaten that night. And there were only 20 hogs. The thing about this was, this attack was so over the top, so ridiculous, that people dismissed it. It couldn't possibly be real, right? And... It never went into the official public record, of course, because the government, they don't care about homeless people while they're alive. Why would they care about them now that they're dead? So the whole thing was quietly pushed to the side and buried. But, as so often happens with the truth, it won't stay buried for very long, particularly when the truth is as big and invasive and ugly as these hogs. These hogs were bigger and more vicious than any other animal in the environment. They disrupted the food chain and established themselves as apex predators within months. And normally, you probably know that hogs are considered opportunistic omnivores. This breed was different. Just like the man who raised them, these pigs were savage and they were aggressively carnivorous. When you add in the fact that hogs reproduced really fast, did you know that a healthy sow can crank out upwards of 20 piglets a year, maybe even 25? But reproducing that fast? The Montcrief hogs spread like wildfire. Reports of giant hogs attacking livestock and raiding remote houses and hunting shacks started coming in from all parts of the state. Hunters would oftentimes claimed to have seen them. What was interesting is that in every verified report, one thing is consistent. The pigs never travel alone. Like wolves, they run in packs. Over the last 10 years, these reports have increased tenfold. In this area of Georgia, around Short Nap, now has a year-round open season on what are called the Montcrief hogs. That's interesting right there to me. 
That's an interesting little story. But recently, a whole other level of insanity got added into the mix. There's a farmer just outside a short map who started breeding what he called Moncrief hogs. And he started trying to legally trademark that name for his company. I've checked out the guy's website, and his hogs are impressive, to be sure. But are they really Moncrief hogs? Who could say? This has actually become a hot-button topic of debate in the foodie community. Seriously, 100% serious. There's a, there's a chef out of Atlanta named Hadley, Gus Hadley. He says that he is the only guy in the world cooking with authentic Moncrief pork. He posted a YouTube video of him and his butcher dismantling a 425-pound wild hog. He said they had killed it bow hunting. Hadley starts serving this meat in his restaurant. And those who taste it say that it is it is pork unparalleled. So rich, so tender and flavorful. So the farmer and the chef start battling it out in the court of public opinion. Both guys point fingers at the other and say, that isn't real Montcrieff pork. As it goes on, the whole thing just pushes the visibility of these pigs higher and higher, and thus their reputation and their price. Well, before too long, what do you know? Chef Hadley and the farmer end up joining forces and opening up a farm-to-table restaurant together that they called Montcrieff's. Montcrieff's is a high-end dining experience. That just so happens to be named and based around a breed of hogs that were raised on human meat by a cannibal serial killer, a breed of hogs that massacred an entire tent city of homeless people, a breed of hogs that invaded the state, disrupted the food chain, became a bit of local lore, and now they're being labeled as possibly the best-tasting pork in the world. And might I remind you, these pigs still don't officially exist, according to the state of Georgia. If you were curious, and I was, Moncrief's currently has a six-month wait list. The cost for an entree runs about 150 per plate, not including salad. It's exactly the sort of place that would never let in a fellow like Obadiah Moncrief, even if it is named after him. I swear to God, if Moncrief ham ever ends up as a basket ingredient on Chopped, I'm going to lose my shit.
The next story is about LARPs. Do you know what LARPs are? The word LARP is an acronym which stands for Live Action Role Playing. Basically, LARPers live out fictional characters as a combination of role-playing, cosplaying, and the fabrication of weapons and gear. These days, there are as many different kinds of LARPs as there are fandoms. The medieval Dungeons & Dragons style is probably the most well-known, but that's really just one facet of a rapidly growing activity. There are more big event LARPs than ever, but also many more people on a local level are starting up chapters and LARPing groups as well. Currently, there are hundreds of thousands of Americans who LARP on a regular basis. We have live-action role plays about vampires, werewolves, westerns, several different types of sci-fi from far-flung to cerebral, post-apocalyptic, cyberpunk, steampunk, and somewhere along the way there are probably some hobbits, I would imagine. I don't mean to sound dismissive. I really don't, because if the idea of this sounds weird to you, the thought of grown people adopting outlandish personas and dressing in costume to evoke a better world for themselves, keep in mind I find it no different than Civil War reenactments or Renaissance fairs. Well, it seems that into this charming world came a man. Maybe, maybe not even a man. We don't know for sure yet. But there was a person who apparently wanted to role-play as a serial killer. This actually started out as a joke thread on Reddit, but someone out there took it to heart and decided to start LARPing as a murderer. It all started at the LARPCon in Las Vegas. The killer first struck at the heart of the Dragon Expo, a gathering that was mostly paladins, bards, and lawful good warriors. No one knew for sure when it happened. The man, in a fabricated knight's armor, had been stabbed cleanly through the heart. He was found sitting on a bench, and police estimate that he'd been sitting there for four or five hours. Someone had not only killed him in full view of thousands, but left the body there, and no one had noticed. This turned out to not be an isolated incident. Over the next five months, there were three more killings, each one happening at a major LARP or convention. The Best in the West Fest featured a gunfight with four dozen outlaws. Only one of them didn't use blanks, and he shot a man dead. In Vancouver... There was a, a regional swordplay tournament that was disrupted by a masked black knight who cut through his opponent's foam-board sword with his very real and very much made-of-steel sword. He impaled the man and left him bleeding out. And then, at the annual Vampire Masquerade Grand Ball, a woman got her throat cut. She wandered through the, the Grand Concourse, the ballroom, clutching at her squirting neck, and everyone gathered around and started cheering and throwing beads at her. There are worse ways to go out than on a standing O, I guess, right? At this point, it's getting out of hand. The cops have long been involved, of course, but 
So is the FBI because the crimes cross state lines. And so are the Mounties because Canadian life has been taken. And you may not know this, but Mounties do not fuck around when it comes to dead Canadians. All the while, the mainstream media ignores the story, but in online LARPing communities, it was all anyone could talk about. They called him the LARPsecutioner. The LARPsecutioner was a true master of LARPing, whose meticulous and devious LARPing mind was an expert at every manner of LARP. This was LARPing on such a high level that they could pass as an expert, vampire, cowboy, black knight, who knows what else. And you may be sitting there thinking, oh, so what? So, like, the guy puts on different costumes. But to skilled LARPers, what he was doing was nigh unthinkable. And you can't make the same mistake that I did, thinking that LARPing was just putting on a costume and adopting a fake name. Anyone can buy a costume. There's so much more to LARPing than that. It really is a lifestyle for a lot of people. And every separate genre of LARP has its own set of protocols, its own rules, its own standards and practices. So when the LARP executioner went undetected at all of these different advanced-level LARPing events... It didn't just mean that his costume skills were on point. It meant that his role-playing was on another level. Come to find out that LARP's executioner had actually struck before. The year prior, in a Gettysburg reenactment, a man had been shot dead. And not too far from that, a woman had been killed at a fairgrounds by a killer that had been dubbed the Ren Fair Ripper. Soon after, two things happened at the annual LARP stock that would change the course of LARPing forever. The LARP executioner struck again. This time, he killed a man dressed as a very famous and very trademarked Marvel Comics character who was found with his skull staved in with a giant hammer. At the same time, this was the largest attendance for any LARP event in the history of LARPing, which was an issue. Because on one hand, you can't in any way encourage nor condone violence, and you can't allow people to be put at risk. But, on the other hand, that element of risk, that danger was making LARPing a much hotter ticket than it had ever been before. When they found that dead Thor LARPer, no one thought to call the police. Instead, they formed a queue. Three dozen people had taken selfies with the deceased before the authorities finally figured out what was happening. In the wake of this, LARPing was now suddenly... kind of cool kind of interesting. Without any sense of danger, it just didn't capture people's attention. It came across as a bunch of people playing pretend. But now... Now there was a chance, however remote, that if you attended a LARP, you might see someone get murdered. And it might even be you. 
Now that's intriguing. That sells tickets. As it stands right now, the LARPing community is expecting its biggest year of growth to date. Times 10. It is projected that this year's LARPtoberfest will be the biggest event in LARPing history. The LARP executioner is not only still at large, but his merch is selling like hotcakes. Right now, you can go online and buy a LARP executioner t-shirt or coffee mug, mouse pad, made by the same victim pool that the LARP executioner is trying to kill. God bless America. Picture in your head, just for a moment, what it means to be tough. When you visualize a tough guy or a tough gal, what do you see? What's your definition? To me, the truest definition of macho, of, of having sand, of pound-for-pound pound badassery, is a man that I'm going to refer to as Dr. B. He's not an MMA fighter or a soldier. He's a veterinarian. He's a kind man, witty, smart, a sharp dresser. He doesn't lift weights. He doesn't shoot guns. He has a very sweet husband named Claudio, and he is, without a doubt, the toughest son of a bitch that I have personally ever met. Let me give you an example. Let me set the table. Many, many years ago, when Dr. B was working with the Peace Corps in Belize, he was in a remote village doing horse vaccinations. One of these wild horses mule-kicked him directly in the testicle. Crushed it. Tennis ball in a hydraulic press style. Quickly swole up like a stepped-on grapefruit in a purple tube sock. But did Dr. B call it a day? Nope. Not until he finished vaccinating all those goddamn horses. Dr. B may not look it, but this is the type of guy that John Rambo would hold the door for. And with that in mind, I recently contacted Dr. B and asked him to send me the story 
of his most famous encounter. This is a story that has become a legend in veterinary circles. In its own way, it has become folklore. Now, out of respect for his career and his veterinary practice, I am withholding Dr. B's full name, but this is his story, straight from the horse's mouth. The letter begins. I had been working with Silver Springs in Ocala, Florida, to try and figure out a minor seizure disorder in an adult male American black bear, weighing 400 pounds or so. I had already done routine diagnostic testing and had not determined the cause of the problem. So we had decided to do EEG and a brain MRI to see if that would help us get a diagnosis. We had to use injectable drugs to keep the bear asleep. My resident had selected metatomidine and ketamine. We first did the EEG, which was normal, and then we went to the MRI center across the street. We had to wait for a couple of dogs to go through before it was our turn, which may have allowed some drug effect to wear off. Unfortunately, my resident had got caught up with an emergency case and was no longer with me. I had a bottle of ketamine in my shirt pocket to top the bear off if needed. We had a catheter in the bear's back leg with a six-foot extension on it so that we could easily give more ketamine, if we thought it was needed and still stay far away from the head at the same time, which was very important. I stayed in the room with the bear to monitor its anesthesia during the procedure. The scan was completed, and several people came into the magnet room. As the gantry backed the bear out of the magnet, I noticed that he was making slight chewing movements, but he still had his endotracheal tube in. So I drew some ketamine into a syringe to administer to it. The cage in our van was only about 50 feet away from the machine. I had a lot of experience with sedation and anesthesia and thought this additional ketamine would probably buy us enough sedation time to get him to the cage. The bearer was on an army stretcher on the gantry during the study so we only had to lift the stretcher with him on it and carry it out to the van. There were two poles, so two people on each pole, head end and butt end. I ended up taking the pole end right in front of the bear's face. At the same time, we all four lifted on our ends of the poles, and as we did so, the bear lifted his head up, and bit me in the groin. We all dropped the stretcher, and I went away from the bear toward the back of the room while everyone else ran out the door. The bear chased after them, and the last person shut the door right in the bear's face, leaving me alone, trapped in the room with the bear. I climbed onto a gurney with my hands pressed against my groin, thinking he had bit my femoral artery and I might be bleeding to death. I had surgical scrubs on, and there was a small amount of blood, but the fabric was not torn. I opened them, and my underwear was the same. Some blood, but no tear. And then, 
if you'll allow me to paraphrase the letter just for a moment. And then, with the utmost care, I looked inside my underwear, where, much to my despair, I found the bear had caused a tear that was very badly in need of repair. Or, in the words of Dr. B., my scrotum was torn open full thickness. The bear had indeed hit my femoral triangle, and there was a big bruise, but the skin and blood vessels were still intact. Do we need to call an ambulance? A voice from the intercom above questioned me. I said yes, that I would need stitches. The bleeding had really stopped by now, and so we had to focus on how to get me out. Unfortunately, I still had the ketamine in my pocket along with the syringe, which was all drawn up and ready to give, but no one outside had any drugs. I told them to call my resident and tell him to bring ketamine and a dart gun. I often imagine the terror in those people on the outside wondering if this 400-pound bear would turn and attack me. What, What would they do? What could they do? I think all that they could do is to watch it tear me to shreds. What a horrific thing to witness. By now the bear had fallen asleep, with his head at the only exit from the room. Can you hand inject him, the voice from above asked me. There was a box of exam gloves on the gurney I was standing on, and foolishly I decided to throw this box at the bear to see if I might be able to sneak up on him and give him ketamine into the IV extension. Because it went directly into his vein, this would cause near-immediate immobilization. The box of gloves hit the bear in the rump and he lifted his head up, turned to look at what it was, and then laid his head back down. I realized sometimes you have to let sleeping bears lie. After what seemed like hours, my resident finally arrived with ketamine and a dart gun. He couldn't even open the door all the way to dart the bear. He cracked it open as much as he could. He reached in, twisted his wrist, and darted the bear. And with that, the bear was down for the count. I was escorted out of the room, and the ambulance driver was waiting outside for me. He asked to see my injury, and I took him into the bathroom. After seeing it, he looked me right in the eye and calmly said, Do you want me to take you to the hospital? I started thinking about what he meant. He would transport me to an emergency room. I would wait probably for hours to have some dingbat suture up my scrotum. Who knows about the cost? Would my insurance cover it? workman's comp. I'm a veterinary surgeon. I could do all of this myself in just a few minutes. And so I said, no, I will suture it up myself. Noticing my right testicle was gone and seeing the big long scar, he asked what had happened to it. 
I told him that I had been kicked by a horse and that it had to be removed. He then very casually said, Can I offer you some advice? You should wear a cup. Once all the drama was over, I went back to the veterinary hospital, and my resident and I went into the zoo medicine ward, locked the door, and got out the things I needed. I numbed it first. I injected the lidocaine into my scrotal skin. My resident did not watch, but kept talking to me the whole time to distract me so that I would not focus on the fact that I was suturing my own torn scrotum for my remaining testicle. Once it was fully numb, I placed the sutures to hold the torn scrotal skin back together, and I used fine sutures. Today, there's hardly any scar. It is much more cosmetic than the other side, where the horse kicked me. End of letter. The moral of the story is that if you ever meet someone who claims to be a tough customer, just ask if they ever got their groin chomped by a bear or if they ever stitched up their own sack. Every year on Christmas night, I give my nuts a check. I handle them so carefully. This year I got quite a fright when I was mid-inspect. Oh, it upset me terribly. To my dismay, it seems something ain't right. It looks like someone's come and had a bite. I don't know what to do I wish my nuts were left unchewed I'm angry and confused Who would do this? I don't think I would mind so much If they had asked me first But I gave no such consent They could have had a little touch But this is so much worse I've never been in such torment why couldn't they have left my nuts alone? Now they've been munched, all I can do is moan. I'll have to live without, but I would have loved to crack one out. Now I just want to shout. Who's been gobbling my nuts? Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Leave my nuts alone, leave my nuts alone. Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Who's been gobbling my nuts? Leave my nuts alone, leave my nuts alone. Won't you leave my nuts in peace? Please leave my nuts in peace. Please don't leave my nuts in pieces. Won't you leave my nuts in peace? Please leave my nuts in peace. Please don't leave my nuts in pieces. Who's been gobbling my nuts? Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Leave my nuts alone, leave my nuts alone Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Leave my nuts alone, leave my nuts alone Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Leave my nuts alone, leave my nuts alone Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Oh, who's been gobbling my nuts? Leave my nuts alone, leave my nuts alone Won't you leave my nuts in peace? Please leave my nuts in peace Please don't leave my nuts in pieces
Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. Email me your feedback or ideas at ascaryhomecompanion at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media, Nateflix on Twitter, or A Scary Home Companion on Facebook. Please subscribe to this podcast on Buzzsprout or iTunes, or click that little heart on Spotify. I would appreciate it. Music in this episode was provided by Deloise with the song Schizophrenic Pigs, Milk Dick with Renaissance Fair, Simon Panrucker with Leave My Nuts Alone, and to continue that trend, the band Comfort Fit with the song Harry Crushed Nuts. As always, opening theme music provided by Chelsea Oxendine. Editing, production, and greased pig wrangling by Jeffrey Davidson. And special thanks to my friend Dr. B for writing about his experience and for allowing me to share it with you.